welcome to the BNP Realm Podcast. Once again, this is your host, Brian, and as always, thanks for joining me. Today, BNP R4, the bullshit of picking a side. Today's episode is a special treat in that every section, with the exception of this one, was recorded in the great outdoors. Not to worry, folks. I've edited out all the farting spiders and barking zebras which populate these parts during this middle week of May and left in only the good stuff. What you'll get are two separate rambles which are connected to today's two chapters of my novel, The Teacher and the Tree Man. And those are the environmental movement and the divisiveness of our cultural diet. For a jumping off point, I use a recent episode of the Sea Realm podcast where they discuss Planet of the Humans, the controversial new Michael Moore produced movie about how much of the green energy movement seems to have been hijacked by our addiction to capitalism and our way of life. I go into some of the deeper reasons on the level of consciousness about why I think this is happening. After the first ramble, in an attempt to give divisiveness a good name, I break it up from its partner, the second ramble on the same topic, with another improvised bit of comedy to lighten the mood. Today, we return to our old favorite, the downside of, and this time the topic is the downside of meditation. Oh boy, I bet our commercially British host with his footsie set firmly in the ground of the modernist landscape is going to have fun digging into this one. One wonders if Jeff Bezos will continue to support him after this hot take. And then you get the second ramble, which does cover some of the same ground as the first take, but with some different metaphors. And then at last, chapters 7 and 8 from book 4 of The Teacher and the Tree Man. I have to say that I'm really getting a kick out of reading my book and feeling more and more that it is something I'll always be very proud of completing. Now, throughout this podcast, you'll hear some references to a few media bits, which I'll link to in the show notes as always. They are... Charles Eisenstein's Amazing Climate, A New Story, which is my go-to book to get a very deep dive into the environmental debate, the most recent episode of the Sea Realm podcast, Planet of the Humans, Michael Moore's produced movie, which you can view for free on YouTube, and last, a three-part blog series I wrote on my old WordPress blog about climate change, which was much inspired by Eisenstein's book. Okay, folks, this is another goodie. But before we get into it, a reminder... If you want to get a head start on supporting me, as I actually start getting some hold hard cash for these efforts, check the show notes where you can find a link to my new Patreon page. I'm going to be releasing some podcasts over there soon, but until I actually see some patron saints who've given me the low price of $3 a month, well, I ain't going to be in too big of a rush. So do the world a favor, support my work, and we'll all be able to survive these increasingly wacky end times with a little more mirth on our plates. That's it. Now, let's get to the show. Here we go! As I mentioned two episodes ago, it is very hard with my fingers in so many different dikes of information, so many topics that I'm interested in, so many things going on in our world right now. It is very, very difficult to choose one topic for my podcast. So, as I'm writing up here, I'm listening first to a really interesting discussion about the New York Times writing an article, which was, as they said on the Astrology Podcast, a hit piece against astrology. 
Second, after listening to some music, I decided to listen to the most recent episode of the Sea Realm podcast, which you may remember, but probably don't. The BNP Realm was somewhat named after, because the Sea Realm is the first podcast that I fell in love with back in the day, and it doesn't get enough credit for being a pioneering podcast, in my opinion. And on the Sea Realm today, he had a man named Justin Ritchie, who is now Dr. Justin Ritchie. Now, Justin Ritchie had a great podcast for several years called The Extra Environmentalist that I used to enjoy quite a bit. He and another man named Seth Moyer Katz, I believe. And it was, a, as you can tell, a, a podcast talking about environmentalism, but also some of the issues like uh, psychedelics and other things at the sea realm and that I myself am quite interested in. And this topic that they were talking about today is Michael Moore's recent movie, or the movie that he's produced that his name is behind which is causing a lot of controversy, called Planet of the Humans. It was released on the eve of uh, Earth Day, and I watched it a few weeks ago and posted about it on my Facebook page. It's a movie that's intended to rile you up. It did so for me, even though, as KMO, the host of the C-Realm, points out, many of these topics he has covered, and I myself understood, for many years. So this wasn't really new information for me, but the film does a good job. It's agitprop is a word for it. It will make you agitated. It's agit agitated propaganda and now that's not to say as this discussion from justin ritchie and camo we're, we're having um that's not to say the movie is all completely factually inaccurate there's a lot of stuff in it that is true and some stuff that's outdated and some of the criticisms of it are accurate but overall i think the idea behind the movie which as the writer and director of the movie Jeff Gibbs said on the TV show Rising that when you're on a finite planet and you're dedicated to infinite growth, that's suicide. And well, that is one of the themes of The Teacher and the Tree Man, which is what this podcast has really been all about. All of the stuff you've heard me talking about before the book has just been window dressing for me to have an excuse to practice podcasting and then to read my book into the world. So, today's episode, I just want to talk a little bit about the topic of where we are at in the environmental movement. And in the just this whole issue, as Jeff Gibbs points out, and as I point out in one of my favorite series that I wrote on climate change, uh, which was inspired by Charles Eisenstein's excellent book, Climate, A New Story, if you really want to understand my thinking on this topic, well, you can read those blog posts, but also Charles's book is great. And that is this. We are singularly focused too much in our culture. We say, here is a problem, so here is a solution. It's not holistic. It's climate change, CO2. We must solve CO2. Well, what about, as Jeff Gibbs points out, 90% of the world's fish are gone, have been fished. We're in the sixth extinction. A global extinction event is going on right now. Now, is that all because of climate change and because we use fossil fuels? Of course not. There are many, many elements to it. Another element to it is the uh, agricultural business, is the way we eat so much meat and the way that that is polluting our environment. And, well, there's just so many, so many, so many elements. But on the level that I'm most interested in, which is the level of consciousness, it's the element of we are separate from each other. We are separate from nature. And nature is a resource, and we will use it for as whatever we damn well please. And, well... That's just not the way things work, folks. We're human. Yes, we're magical. We're amazing creatures. But we're just one creature on this planet. And Mother Nature is a living creature in and of itself. It's a collective. And Mother Nature will tell us to... Sorry, pardon my French, but it will tell us to fuck off and die. If 
we continue at this pace. And that is the point of my book. It's the point of this movie. And it's the point that the critics of this movie are overlooking because they're focused on, well, you know, you said, you know, you're looking at uh, solar power and like it's advanced so much as you, you know, and okay, that's an accurate criticism, but it's looking at one tiny thing. You're not looking at the big picture. And the big picture is the green energy movement has been hijacked by capitalism because our culture wants to keep going. We don't want to change. It's a human kind of thing that we've got this thing going. We don't want to change it. And quite honestly, as I point out in my book, quite honestly, we have made a big mistake in the sense of making the economy the real thing and the environment the secondary thing. And yet, and yet, we are all living creatures of this planet. I cannot live without water, I cannot live without food, and neither can you. Now I know there are people out there that would love for us to be able to become pure robots and not have any of this biology, but well, that ain't happening yet. So we have to understand that. If we want humanity to thrive, and quite honestly for me it's more than humanity, I want this tree behind me to thrive. I want that fish out there in the river that I can't see but that I know is out there to thrive. I want the river itself to thrive. I want the clouds above me. I want the whole earth to thrive because I love it all. And if that means for it to thrive, we have to slow down our economic system and we have to sacrifice some of our material well-being, then so be it. Having said that, I don't think that necessarily that's what's being really asked of us. In a sense it is, in a sense, as the situation we're involved in, the coronavirus, you know, people can't travel around the world, cruise ships and stuff. Well, quite honestly, I've always found the whole cruise ship thing a little bit obscene. And I know people listening, you know, I know people, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to be judgmental, but I've often found that in a world where you have so many people without basic food and, you know, water, in in that kind of a world, I I just feel like some of our extremes of culture, and this is interesting because a, a cruise ship, many people can take them that aren't mega rich, but by the world standards they are point is, is if we have to give up the cruise ship culture so that our planet can thrive and that humanity can thrive, I think we should all be willing to say, all right, cruise ships were an interesting part of our experiment, but we can't sustain it, you know? And I don't think there's too many people that would say that that's asking too much. And I think the other aspect of it that I think a lot of people are realizing, you know, I've got friends in America right now who work full-time jobs and they're not allowed to go into work and they're telling me how much they love not having to commute into work. They have more time. And on the same hand, they're saying it's hard because they're home with their kids and, you know, it's a little harder to get work done and this and that. And they would like to be able to have a little more freedom to go out and this and that and all these other topics. But the idea that we all have to get in a car and drive in traffic for an hour or take a subway or whatever and that to get to a physical location for a job that we could do equally well from home and we aren't enjoying the ride. We're wasting our time, and we're polluting the environment, and we're wasting uh, energy resources. I think that this experience we're having is a great chance for us to say, you know what, that is a thing of the past. Let's not do that anymore. Now, that doesn't mean everybody, because again, if you're building uh, apartment buildings around, you've got to go to the physical location. So if you have a job that's dependent upon you being in a location to do the job, then of course you go. 
But I think we're really being allowed to rethink a lot of this stuff, and that's a great opportunity. And so one of the issues that the book, Chapter 7, you're going to hear brings up is the divisiveness of our culture and this either-or thinking. And it, quite honestly, to me, I think we're peaking with it. I think this year, maybe next I might be just this year, might, this might be the pinnacle of, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm right, you're wrong. And like just this quick reactionary thinking that doesn't have any allowance for nuance or for being in a place of humility, of I don't know, of asking a question. This idea that we got to censor someone for asking a question or, oh, you're giving someone a platform because you're putting them on your page and you know, all this stuff. Don't, don't do that. It's wrong. It's no marketplace of ideas. We need that more than ever. And I think that's actually going to start really thriving. I think that we're, we're, get, we've at, we're at an extreme now with this polarity, this divisiveness. And I think we're, a lot of us are, if we're not realizing it yet, we're going to realize soon that this is, in the words of Lance Reddick's character on uh, The Wire, this is bullshit. All right, I'll leave it at that. And thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. This is your host, from the downside of Brian Vitcher. Today's topic is the downside of meditation. Indeed, I don't even know why we have to discuss this topic, because really, what is the upside of meditation? I myself don't know. I tried it, and I never will. But I certainly can talk to you about the downside. And we have plenty of guests waiting patiently as we're biking here. Thank you again to Jeff Bezos for allowing us to have a bicycle and a sponsor to keep this show going during these troubled times. Now, who is our first caller? Let's see. Oh, indeed. Today's first caller is a caller you've never heard from before. Or maybe you have. I can't remember. It is none other than to James McKnight. Aww. Hello, James. Your distinctive R always soothes the soul. Please tell us, what is the downside of meditation? I have never really tried it, but it seems like kind of a waste of time. Indeed. Always been my thought, too. Sitting there, eyes closed, doing nothing. How can you accomplish anything when you're doing nothing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did know some people before when I lived in Japan. Yes. That they said it was a... Useful practice for... Do you... Don't wait, wait, wait. We are talking about the downside, James. Don't you understand? When you come on this show, you must be pertinent. You must stick to the topic. Okay, well, I'm just trying to offer a bit of a contrarian point of view. I appreciate contrarianism. After all, that is the point of the show. Because, you see, there is a myth in our culture that there is some sort of upside to meditation, but we all know that it is not true. So, this is the contrary point of view, the downside. Okay, James, thanks for calling. Please enjoy your time in, what was the name of your town again? Tucson. We're making America, or we're making America great. I'm making it great in Tucson. Indeed. Okay, let's get to our next caller. Thank you again, James. All right. So the next caller is, of course, Mr. Miles Caskins. Miles, what is the downside of meditation? Well, I'm already kind of slow, so I don't think I really need to slow down. What is it they call it? The hyena mind? I believe it's something like that. Some sort of African wildlife rhino mind or something? Yeah, well, whatever. 
I, I, my brain already moves pretty slow, so I don't think I can make it go any slower. So that's the downside for me. Indeed. Makes perfect sense to me, Miles. Today you're quite on point, unlike the other day. But then again, it is fun to say Bezos, is it not? <laughs> Beelzebub Bezos. No, don't call him that. Just Bezos is enough. Okay, the next caller. Yes, indeed. It seems that she often follows up, uh, follows up Miles Caskins. Miss Penny Pigbottom. Penny, what do you have to say today about the topic? The downside of meditation. Well, let me see. I have to stop my bicycle to tell you. Indeed. Tell us, quickly, because we're near some coronavirus-infected bees here, and I don't want to get stung by one of them. Okay. Okay, well, the downside of meditation is how am I supposed to care for my piggies with my eyes closed and staring at silent darkness? Oh, that is a great point. And if you don't care for your piggies, I cannot eat my bacon. And that is, after all, what life is all about, which is good bacon. Yes. Please, everyone, if you don't mind, can I do a pitch? Make it quick. We do have a timeline here. Please buy pig-bottom bacon, please. Please. We are in a troubled time right now. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Pig-bottom bacon, I can highly recommend it. Thank you, Miss Pig-bottom. Next time, please send us some money if you're going to ask to speak up as an advertiser for the show. Thank you. Next, our next and last caller is... Oh, those bees are getting close. Oh, boy. Indeed, it's Brian Winchell. I guess we have to have you on the phone. What is the downside of meditation? Well, hmm. I can see its benefits. I don't want to hear about the benefits. We know all about them. The media is just covering us with benefits as bad as these bees that I'm watching. Okay, the downside for meditation for me is... Well, it's kind of boring. It is boring, is it not? Well, that's what I just said. Well, what else do you have to say? Is there anything else pertinent you want to share with us today? Well, I think, um, you know, you can do meditation all sorts of ways, like playing music. You know, like when I'm playing my guitar, I've kind of stopped my verbal processing and my trying to figure myself out and the world out with my mind. I'm kind of lost in the music. I can ride my bike. Uh, you know, there's lots of things I can do that kind of get me into the meditative state, at least what I think the point is of it. But, you know, I'm not saying that people can't do it if it works for you, if you like it, and go ahead. I mean, I still do it every day. Why would you do something every day that has a downside, Winchell? Well, I mean, sometimes in life you can actually grow from doing things that are difficult. Oh, well, whatever. I don't believe that is actually accurate, but we'll let you have the last word this time, Winchell. Next time, please call up and please try to stick to the topic. Okay, everyone, thank you again for joining us today. It's been the downside of meditation, and I hope you have enjoyed this one. There is much more we can say and probably billions of callers that could actually fill us in, unlike the people we've had so far. Never mind that. I'm sorry. Don't mean to insult our callers. They are good ones, indeed. If they are not, well, you should listen to another show. Thank you again for joining us on the downside of... Meditation with your host, Brian Mitchell. Goodbye. I just popped into the river here. It's going to be a nice warm day here. It's going to be in the low to mid 80s. Thursday, May 14th, 2020. This is the river near my house. 
Now there's a, I should say, I, I should clarify that. There are several rivers near my house. This is the riverlands of central Japan, after all. This is the cold river. This is the one that comes straight from the mountains. And there's something I need to learn. I, I saw a video. I saw Wim Hof addressing this. But, you know, he does these, he does like an ice bath for an hour and 50 minutes or something. When I go in cold water like this, my feet just start hurting quick. When I was a kid, I had a experience. We had some snow in our my hometown. We didn't have a lot of snow there, but we had a bunch of snow. And I went sledding at the golf course down the street in the hill. And I got... I don't know if I, I don't know technically if I had frostbite or not, but I got really bad cold feet and I went home. I remember my parents put me in the hot bath. It might not have been in the hot, but I remember just being so painful. So like this river here, I, I was only in for, I don't even know, not even a minute just because my feet were getting cold. Point is, Wim had an answer about how you work on keeping your extremities from getting cold. Uh, when I do the cold showers at my house, like my feet just aren't in the water that much, you know, so. Uh, but it feels great now, man. I got in that water, and then I'm out. You know, I was kind of hot and feeling a little bit like, man, this sun's not so good, but now I feel great. So I just finished reading Chapter 8 of my book, which you'll hear at the end of this podcast. And chapters 6 through, I don't remember the exact part, but these chapters that we've been listening to in Book 4, it's kind of like my, at that time, when I wrote those, it was 2008, 2009, it would have been if Brian Winchell ran for president, this is my, <laughs> this is what I would have campaigned on, you know? And a lot of those things haven't changed. When I read that back right now, I thought, yeah, I totally am with all this still. And the topic that I'm going to address is we need to live naturally, basically. We need to be, realign ourselves with nature. What we've done wrong here in the past, let's just go recent years, but we'll, you know, the capitalist system, the problem with it is that it's it's not aligned with nature. And we've, we've made this as so there's a war between the economy and the environment. And that, that war doesn't need to exist. You just need to create an economy that's based on the environment. I don't think my book really addresses that enough, maybe because my understanding wasn't good enough at the time. But it, it, he, Sylvanus Douglas does bring it up that they don't the two don't have to be at war together. And I think in the past, since I've written that book, there have been a lot of advances in that direction. That said, the other thing I'm playing from today's uh, for the podcast this week is about Michael Moore's recent movie, Planet of the Humans. So this really does tie in well to the chapters this week, because the chapters are about the divisiveness in our culture and the kind of either-oring and... The simplifying of issues, and that movie suffers from a lot of that. But one of the reasons that movie—it's a—I think it's called a polemic, you know, or I call it an agitprop in my other clip. Um, one of the reasons that movie does that is because—and I found this out so much on my social media—if I share something from a kind of calm place, honestly, it just doesn't get much engagement in our culture right now. But if I share something with the angry emojis and I come from some fire, then people engage. And that's what that movie was basically doing. No, I think the people, I don't think they were, they're being dishonest in their presentation. I think they honestly believe what they said. But Michael Moore's movies have always done that. They've always been this kind of call to action and, you know, rile people up so you'll pay attention to this stuff. And that's the reason he's been a successful documentarian in these times. And that's the reason he's controversial and he pushes people's buttons. That's his style. But when you use that style, you're also going to put people into for lack of a better term, two camps. You're going to put people into, oh, I support this. Yeah, I, I agree with this, or I disagree. You're just, it's just that's what's going to happen. And so in a sense, we've kind of done that with the economy versus the environment. And you can see it playing out in the, got to go back to work. 
Oh, we got to get back, got to get the economy going again. And people were saying, yeah, but people are going to die. And so in a sense, that's sort of a economy versus environment thing. No, I have my own issues with whether that narrative is true or not. But the point is, is we put everything in these, these two camps. And then you have to pick a side. And if you're trying to be a person with any nuance to your discussion, or you're trying to see things from, you know, multiple perspectives and hear the other side, you just don't get hurt in this culture right now. You know, people ignore you or or they or what ha what has happened to me mostly is if I question the narrative of one side then all of a sudden the people on that side will say, hey, you're on the other side. You're supporting, you know, if I question Russiagate, oh, you like Trump. And you know, that's an example, you know, no, I don't like Trump. And then I have to go into that. So it's just really hard to have these conversations because there's this either or two sided discussion. It's deeply embedded in the rational mindset. Now, people who know more about uh, rationality and the kind of logical thinking could probably tell me I've got some mistaken assumptions about that, but I'm probably not using that term exactly correctly, but it's the masculine perspective on things, and it focuses in, like, here's an example. When a man goes shopping, and I know this for myself, like, I hate shopping. I don't go shop with a bride wide open, like, I'm going to just look around, and I need I know I need to get milk and whatever, but I'm going to look around and see what's here. No, I go shopping with a fucking intent. I got to buy milk. I'm going in. I'm going out. I'm on a mission. I'm singularly focused, <laughs> you know? And if people get in my way, if I'm, if I'm really in that mindset, if there's, like, people in my way, I can get irritated. Like, come on, get out of the fucking way. I want it, you know? And so, and they say that about men. Like, men, when they go shopping, they tend to kind of go in and out. And so men have a kind of narrow, and this is the Western cultural focus, is like we're focused on one thing and we do that thing and we're good at that. But there's a limitation to that because you don't see the big picture. We need both. Sometimes you need to be like, I've got a certain amount of time. I've got to buy the milk. I'm sorry, honey. I know you want to go shopping right now, but if we don't get this milk in 10 minutes, we will miss our airplane. You know, that kind of, sometimes you have to be singularly focused. But sometimes you need to be broadly focused. Honey, I know you want to get out of here in 10 minutes to get home to watch the football game, but there's some stuff I kind of want to look around for. I'm not exactly sure what we need to buy, but I know we need to buy something, and I can't quite remember, but I want to kind of just, I want to look around. Maybe something will speak to me. We need both those perspectives. And right now, I think what's happening in our culture is our culture has gotten too far into the first perspective, the singularly focused perspective, and so the pendulum is swinging back and it's, it's needing to say, motherfuckers, slow down, look around, big picture, chill out. And your economy, your, your, your short-term profits, all this stuff that you're so focused on, you're missing out on the big picture. And by doing that, you're creating a situation where you're going to kill yourselves. And so I think that on a bigger picture, that's what's going on. And it's very interesting because I'm just seeing this, how this is playing out in collective psychology. Like social media for me is a really interesting place to watch a lot of this stuff because I see it, everyone. I, this, is not, this is not a thing that's happening just for people on the left or people on the right. That, would, again, would be rather either or. It's happening to the culture <laughs> worldwide. Most of my friends tend to be in America and, you know, Westerners, but I'm pretty sure it's probably happening in other countries, too. But I think in general it's a, it's a more Western thing because this is a Western cultural outlook. Here in the East, it's a little different. Anyway, I think that's good enough. This river's awesome, and nature is awesome, and, uh, yeah.
Okay, so today's reading of The Teacher and the Tree Man, Book 4, Chapters 7 and 8, is a bit of a special occasion. I'm going to read this outside, sitting under a tree. So if you can hear birds, or right now there was a chopper in the distance, if you can hear noises, it's because I'm outside underneath a tree, but I figured there's no wind right now. It's supposed to get really windy here in a little while. So I figured I should at least read one chapter here underneath a tree in honor of our book, The Teacher and the Tree Man. Okay, here we go. Chapter 7, A Higher Calling. You are not going to believe what I just saw on Mercury, Terry said when Lucas and Sylvanus walked through the front door with the groceries. What? Sylvanus asked. Raleigh's calling for my head on a stick? Lucas laughed. No, Terry said. It was a poll which asked the question, should Sylvanus Douglas run for president? What the hell? Lucas said. That's crazy. No, Paul, Terry said. It's not. Fifty-six percent said yes. That can't be right, Lucas said. Are you sure you saw that right? I did a double take, Terry said, but I made sure by checking their website. Sure enough, fifty-six percent said yes, thirty-nine percent said no, and five percent were undecided. What does that mean, Paul? Sylvanus asked. It means your interview with Wynne was a smashing success, Lucas said. At least with the folks watching Mercury. Sylvanus, I need to call Larry, so can you help Terry with dinner? Uh, sure, Sylvanus said. But wait, Paul. So this means I wasn't totally wrong for saying what I said? Lucas stopped. Did you mean what you said? Well, yes, of course, Sylvanus said. Then, no matter what some poll says, you couldn't have been wrong for saying it, Lucas said. All this means is that there are some people who agree with a lot of what you said. Sylvanus's blog, Wednesday, April 16, 2003. I'm writing this blog from a place of confusion. Yesterday, I went on the Barry Wynn show, and apparently I struck some nerves. Lucas tells me what I said is rarely heard on TV and that I called into question some of the basic assumptions of our culture. Honestly, that wasn't my intent. I know this is hard to relate to, because most of you have a lot more time living in the human world than me, but I just have so many questions about how things work in this world. I only wish to explore those questions. Lucas tells me sometimes that I am like having a big child around without the crying fits, usually. What he means is that I am curious, and unafraid to ask questions. Which makes me curious. Are curiosity and inquisitiveness uncommon in adults? I wonder, because I find life is much more enjoyable when I am engaging the world with questions. Lucas also tells me there will be people who don't really hear what I am saying. Rather, they will only hear what I am saying through the filter of someone else. For example... If I say something about how I want to have a gun-free world, and have the governments give up their weapons first, the filter will only replay the first part of the quote, and then claim that I want to take people's guns away, thus letting the government have all the weapons. No, that's not it. What I would love is a world with less violence. Isn't that what we all want? Or at least the majority of us? I mean, how can I be painted as some sort of radical because I want a more peaceful world? Why is it acceptable for large groups of people like governments to use violence, or the threat of violence, to pursue its goals, but it's not acceptable for individuals? In the former case, we call it war. In the latter, murder. That's why that bumper sticker says, war is murder. 
What I would love to see is an international organization like the UN set target dates to rid the world of war, declaring it as outdated and immoral as slavery. If you had rules that in all cases war was illegal and nobody had the right to attack another, any country that broke that rule would then face the consequences. Now, what these consequences are would be a matter of great debate. My answer would be to create serious economic and political consequences for engaging in war. The point is, we need to be firm about the idea that war is unacceptable. For as long as we live in a world that describes certain circumstances where it's allowed and then make up rules of war, which are often ignored during actual wars, we are going to have war. I'd be curious, readers, how many of you believe we can ever have a war-free world? Or at least a world where war is very uncommon? Please write in your answer to this question in the comments section. As for guns, if governments then took the big step to start reducing their weapons stockpiles, perhaps it would encourage individuals to do so as well. For one of the main reasons people say they have guns is to protect themselves against the government. So, if the government was unarmed, that would pretty much destroy that excuse. Now, I know this would do harm to certain industries, such as weapon manufacturers, security contractors, etc. You know what? Good. Because I just can't use an economic argument to continue something immoral. Again, we don't say, well, if we get rid of protectionism, what are the thugs that go around beating up people who don't pay? How will they survive? They'll survive by finding a more respectable line of work. So, the same goes for weapons manufacturers. The way I see it, there is a ton of real, necessary, beneficial work in these United States. Our infrastructure needs many repairs, for example. So we just need to shift our priorities, and the jobs will be there. But that is an issue for a future post. Last, I want to announce that in two weeks, Tuesday, April 30th, I will be giving my first full public speech at the University of Washington. We've yet to confirm the location, but it appears that due to my appearance last night, we are going to have to go for the big time and get the basketball arena. Wherever it is, tickets will be $10 apiece, with discounts available for students, the elderly, and others. 80% of the profits will go to charity. I hope to see some of you there. The Calm Before the Storm that was how Lucas described those two weeks before the UW speech. Sylvanus wrote a few more blog posts, but mostly he and Lucas decided to let things settle down while focusing on his speech. Again, he refused to write out a speech, but rather had conversations with Lucas that helped focus his message. Lucas was fine with that, considering how his off-the-cuff remarks at the press conference had led to Miller contacting them. Miller, though, was not as pleased with their decision to step out of the limelight. He argued that they needed to take advantage of the media storm his appearance on Wind Show had created. But Sylvanus was adamant, and Miller eventually realized that once the tree man dug his feet in, he couldn't be uprooted. Would you look at that, Sylvanus said, as they approached Hack Edmondson Pavilion, the on-campus indoor arena for the University of Washington. What, you see where we were supposed to park? Lucas asked. No, no, that, Sylvanus said pointing to a large crowd of people gathered around the entrance to the arena. Most of the people appeared to be similar to the crowd they'd marched with in February, but Sylvanus was pointing at a small group of protesters in the large crowd. Wonderful, Lucas said, slightly laughing at the sight of people with signs like, Leave my guns alone, tree freak, and guns plus military equals freedom.
You know you're hitting the big time when you can draw some protesters. Do you seriously think it's funny, Paul? Sylvanus asked. Yeah, sort of, Lucas said. But I was being serious. The fact that you've caused enough of a reaction in people to both draw a crowd of people who want to hear you and some haters means people are paying attention. Suddenly, Lucas turned the car into a small alley behind the arena. Here we are, he said, pulling down his window and telling a campus police man who they were. He waved them through, and they found a parking spot. Lucas looked at Sylvanus and realized his friend was angry. Look, Sylvanus, Lucas said, you're going to face opposition, and you know it's their right to express themselves. Of course I know that, Paul, Sylvanus said in a tone that surprised Lucas, but they are totally missing what I said. I never said I wanted to take anyone's guns. I know you didn't, Lucas said, but they probably don't, which just means you're going to have to say it again and again. Suddenly, Sylvanus opened the door and began walking toward the front of the arena, straight toward the protesters. Ah, shit, Lucas thought, quickly giving chase. Sylvanus, wait! But the tree man only increased his pace, and Lucas could tell he was going to have trouble catching him before he reached the protesters. He wanted to trust Sylvanus, but he'd rarely seen him so angry, and considering that the protesters were also angry, he began to run. But he was too late. Sylvanus was only several feet from the protesters who hadn't seen him yet. Hey! Sylvanus yelled, and a protester, a young woman with a support our troops hat, turned, eyes growing large as she saw who it was, and then, just as her eyes narrowed in anger, Sylvanus reached out his hand. She jumped back, but suddenly realized he was offering to shake her hand. Can I talk to you for a sec? Momentarily stunned, the woman didn't offer her hand and no one in the group could think of anything to say before Sylvanus continued. Hear me out. I don't want to try to change your minds out here. Why don't you come in and join the conversation? What, you mean pay ten bucks to listen to a tree-hugger? said a heavy-set man. Uh, no, Sylvanus said, voice totally bereft of the anger Lucas had heard in the car. All of you can come in, as my guests. You mean for free? asked the girl. Absolutely, Sylvanus said and smiled. All just need to give the go-ahead to the ticket-taker. The group of protesters, Lucas counted nine of them, looked at each other as if to weigh their options, and then the heavy-set man said, Well, all right, then. Come with me, Sylvanus said. The group followed Sylvanus to the ticket booth, and after the tree man had a few words with the ticket-taker, the man nodded at the group and said, Whenever you want to go in, folks. Sylvanus quickly told them, Apologies for leaving so quick, but I've got to get ready. I'll see you in there. As he entered the arena with a stunned into silence Lucas, Sylvanus looked at his friend, smiled, and said, Score one for sudden inspiration. Sylvanus stared out at the crowd, guessing there were several hundred people, before finally locating the group, sitting in the front row, making visible the sign, proud to be a member of the U.S. military. After sweeping the full audience, he settled his eyes on this group and said, I want to thank you for coming then back across the whole crowd. All of you. First, I'd like to share a few comments, and then we'll open the floor for a discussion, he said. He smiled, took a deep breath, and began. Tonight, I want to talk about divisiveness, holding too strongly to one's position, and humility. Let's start with divisiveness. It's not news to any of you that we are a divided nation. It seems as though we are conditioned to pick sides. One could say this is the fault of the two-party political system and its language of liberals and conservatives, blue states and red states. But I think this is just a symptom, not the cause itself. 
The cause, I believe, is deeper and relates to the way we relate to the world, this me and you, or collectively, this us and them. We define ourselves in terms of separation and in terms of our individuality. We thus create a division between me and the world. But sadly, we take it to an extreme, an extreme poisoned by the fear of all things not me or not us. One could easily blame an economic system that fosters intense competition, a sort of social Darwinistic survival of the fittest. But again, I suspect this is just a symptom of a deeper cause, a cause which again relates to the way we think things are. But what if we are wrong? Here, Sylvanus paused. The crowd seemed to anticipate his next words. Adi let them sit with the ideas a moment longer. Humility, he started is a recognition that we don't have all the answers, aren't required to have all the answers, and don't expect others to either. Anybody that promises you the truth with a capital T is likely blowing hot air at you while often reaching for your wallet. The only truth I know is, I don't know. But before this news deflates you, let me say, this is good news. Accepting that we have limited understanding is in a strange way, liberating. For once we let go of our knowing, we become open in a way we cannot know when we know it all. How can we really expect to learn anything new if we profess to have all the answers? So, I want to make it clear. What I offer is not some ultimate truth. It is just the perspective of a man who had a very strange experience, which has both gifted and burdened me with seeing the world through a very unique lens. Yet I still recognize that what I experience is filtered through my lens, just as your reality is filtered through your lens. Thus, in order to live together, we have to remember this and remain humble. And we also have to listen. Listen, and not rush to quick judgments. People are complex, and our deepest thoughts cannot easily be distilled into short soundbites. So... Before I finish my remarks, I want to clarify what I am not. I am not anti-gun. I am not anti-military. That said, I am for working toward a world with less of a dependence on guns and militaries. Two weeks ago, a close friend, a veteran of the Korean War, was gunned down and killed by a man who was so opposed to our current wars that he felt the way to avenge his brother who died in Afghanistan was to shoot up a shopping mall. No, it makes no sense. But does any of it? I mean, this notion that peace can be forced upon us either with violence or the threat of violence. Do we really have such low opinions of our inherent nature that we believe this? And if we do believe it, can we really expect to live in a world free of such people as Billy Watkins? After all, he was merely acting out this belief that violence solves problems. Now, I don't want to simplify these issues. Again, I don't have all the answers. What I do have is a desire, like all of us, I believe, to live in a better world. And I really don't see that happening so long as we make rash judgments where we eliminate listening to a person merely because they are not on our team or because they express an opinion we don't agree with. If there is one thing my time living in a tree taught me to do, it is to listen. So... With that said, rather than continuing to jabber at you, I want to listen 
to all of you. So let's open the floor, and if we have time at the end, perhaps I will leave you with some closing thoughts. Sylvanus stopped and looked toward Lucas on the side of the stage. He was speaking to Larry and a woman Sylvanus didn't recognize. Finally, Lucas looked up and saw Sylvanus staring at him, and when Sylvanus nodded at him, Lucas, Larry, and the woman walked off the side of the stage. We are going to have three microphones circulating, so if you want to say anything, please raise your hand, Sylvanus said. For a moment, Sylvanus wondered if he'd stopped too soon, because even though Lucas, Larry, and the woman were circulating in the audience looking for raised hands, there were none. Sylvanus was about to say something when a girl in a green sweater in the back of the room raised her hand. Larry quickly ran over and handed her a mic. She began, I didn't know what to expect tonight, but I certainly didn't expect a speech tying together arrogance, hard-headedness, and our national divisiveness. I'm not saying it was bad. Actually, the opposite. See, I'm a student here majoring in environmental studies, and much as I value the classes, I can only take so much of a person speaking at me rather than with me. So thanks for opening the floor. I wonder if you could answer a question. You speak about the separation people feel from the world around them, and I agree, but I wonder how someone living a busy life in this culture can cultivate a sense of connection. Thanks. The girl sat down. Sylvanus was pleased to have such a relevant question to kick things off. He said, That's a great question that probably has many answers. The first thing that comes to my mind is for people to start being more conscious not only of what they are doing and thinking, but why. Too often, it seems like people cruise on autopilot, never asking themselves why they do or think what they do. Second, slow down. Unbusy yourself. I know this is easier said than done, but sometimes I think people intentionally keep themselves busy so they can ignore thinking about these things. I read the other day that the average American spends about four hours a day watching TV, so I'm pretty confident most people could cut into that and give themselves some time. Last, though I said it before, it bears repeating. Get out into nature and open yourself up to it. Not only your senses, but your emotions, your intuitions. Connect to nature with all of your being. Observe it and pay attention to its cycles and rhythms. Watch the magical transformation of a sunset or a sunrise. I am pretty sure if people really did this, they would start feeling more connected. Again, there are many ways to reconnect, but because a sense of connection relates to how we perceive the world and our relation with it, I have to think becoming more aware of our current thinking is a good beginning. Now, several hands were raised, and for the next hour, people asked thoughtful questions that Sylvanus did his best to answer. He also deferred a few questions to the crowd, seeing if anybody had answers that he couldn't think of. In this way, the exchange was less about Sylvanus being the expert and more about everyone there having something to share. He really felt things were going well when one of the protesters in the front row raised his hand. It was the heavyset man. All that is well and good, he said, but I just can't get past you wanting to take my guns away. That's not what I said, Sylvanus said. I, you've had your chance to speak, the man said, voice raising. Now, let me have mine. Sylvanus nodded. Okay, the man said. You may not think so, but there are a lot of dangerous people in the world. That I can guarantee you. Hell, just last year one of them busted my car window and stole my stereo. Anyway, guns are a necessary protection, and you may not be aware of it, 
but owning them are guaranteed as a right in the Second Amendment to the Constitution. To believe that if we all start thinking the world is more lovely and connected, that dangerous people are going to go away, that's a pipe dream. So, considering this is one of your first political positions you've stated, I kind of have trouble taking much of anything else you say too seriously. Sylvanus was about to respond, when a voice shouted from the middle of the room, Why should we take you seriously? Who said that? The man answered, looking into the crowd. A young man in a U of W hoodie stood up and said, I did. Is that a problem? People, people, Sylvanus said, tapping the mic to get their attention. But the man had to continue. Yes, it is. I served this country when you weren't even alive, and why does that matter? Apparently, you weren't ever taught to respect your elders, the man said. Sure I was, the kid said. But I was also taught respect has to be earned, not just granted. And sorry, but I have trouble respecting a dude who thinks he needs a gun to keep the scary bad guys away. Stop, Sylvanus yelled. The man appeared ready to fire a retort, so Sylvanus said even louder, Enough! That worked on both of them. I can respect both of your positions, Sylvanus said, but I can't respect the way you two are interacting with each other. Look, I know these topics press our buttons, but we're going to have to learn to hash out these issues with people we disagree with without getting personal. That all said, Sylvanus finished, I think we need to bring this to a close. I really appreciate you all coming out and... A voice shouted from the back of the room. Are you going to run for president? Sylvanus froze, not sure what to say. At last, he said, I have no aspirations to be president, as I have no desire to hold a position where I'd be running so much of your lives. But we need someone more than ever, someone said. A hush settled over the crowd. Perhaps so, Sylvanus said. I am just not sure that someone is me. Go for it, someone shouted, and a good portion of the crowd cheered. Okay, okay, Sylvanus said. All I can promise now is I won't rule it out. Fair enough? And with that, Sylvanus brought the gathering to a close, reminding people that he had a forum on his website where people could discuss some of these ideas. Sylvanus had packed up his things and was waiting to leave when Larry walked up to him and said, President Sylvanus Douglas, got to admit, it's got a nice ring to it. He woke up, not in a treehouse, but in his room. Sorry, one more time. He woke up, not in a tree, but in his room in the Lucas house. Sweat dripped off his face. So that's how it had happened, he thought. So much for volunteering. It figured. He'd expected as much. Nobody in their right mind would volunteer for something so crazy. And considering the consequences, not 500 feet to another room, but an unknown distance to an ancient forest, and not five minutes into the past, but fifty years into the future, why would anyone volunteer for that? Plus, now knowing that he'd been the first, it made even more sense. First, and, he assumed, last. He could imagine their reaction, disappointment, frustration, and worry. Would they be able to defeat Hitler without it? He wondered what they told the other men about what had happened to him. Perhaps that's why they'd done it in the middle of the night. If it went wrong, they could make up a story about Green needing to return home or something. A family emergency. Whatever. Anything but the truth. But they would know. They'd know because suddenly the project would be over. Or would it? After all, would they have any idea how badly they'd missed the target? If they really knew where he'd ended up, why hadn't there been soldiers in the forest waiting for him? Who knew? 
Maybe they did know, but didn't care. Or they knew, but couldn't exactly send some soldier in 1993 out to the forest to interdict him, because how would they explain that? Or they had no idea. In the end, it didn't matter. Because in the end, he was just another casualty of that horrid conflict. Just collateral damage. Angry, he went back to sleep. Before going to bed that night, Lucas had written a short email to Miller, asking about all this talk of Sylvanus running for president. He checked his email first thing the next morning before going to school and got this reply. Paul, I'm merely responding to the will of the people. It seems there is enough interest that he should at least entertain the idea. I assure you, with me on his team, he'd have plenty of support. I also think we can get support from others in the progressive and environmental community. Besides, it's not like there are a bunch of other exciting candidates out there. Dean's okay, but lacks the charisma and seems downright boring when you compare his background to that of our time-traveling, tree-living security guard hero. And Carrie? Talk about boring. Nah, in this field, Sylvanus... I'm going to do that one more time. Nah, in this field, Sylvanus is a legit shot. And really, what's to lose? Even if it doesn't work, running a presidential campaign all but guarantees that Sylvanus will be getting his message out, right? Isn't that what we want? Think about it. Talk it over with Sylvanus, but don't dilly-dally. We need to catch this wave before it breaks. Lucas read the email a few times. He had to admit, Miller was convincing. Lucas was on board. But would Sylvanus be? Sylvanus' blog, Wednesday, April 31st, 2003. No matter how many people tell me I should run for president, I've never felt so unsure about a decision. So I hope everyone can bear with me for a few more days as I figure this out. I promise to decide by the weekend. In the meantime, I'd like to make a few things clear about what kind of philosophy would be driving me if I was president, or if not. Here we go. We've got it backwards. We put our economy first and the environment second, as though the reality of nature will succumb to the power of our imagined economic system. The myth we live by as a culture is, as tens of thousands of scientists have been warning us over the past few decades, unsustainable. That means, if we continue to follow this path, our civilization will decline, collapse, or perish. This is not news. Yet when was the last time we've heard a national politician in a major country speak of this? We are told it is political suicide to do so. Maybe so. But if I do run for president, we will find out. Because I will say this. I will say that rather than basing... Uh, one more time. Hold on a sec. <clears throat> I will say that rather than basing our society on an economic model we've invented... We should base it on a humble, ecological understanding of the deep interconnection of things. In other words, base it on reality, not human invention. This is an understanding that not only scientists have come to, but our most progressive religious and spiritual figures understand as well, not to mention many of the cultures we've wiped out over the years. It recognizes that we live on a finite planet with a limited carrying capacity, and that we need a new paradigm a new economic model that is not based on this relatively recent ideal of perpetual growth. Now, I've yet to flesh out my thoughts much beyond this basic yet important concept, but I trust, no, I know, that there are many, 
many intelligent individuals out there who can join my team to help me develop a new model, one that not only is good for the environment, but for our economy. As it stands now, we've put those two things at war, but I don't think they have to be. It will take some effort, discipline, and imagination to create a new model, but our children, grandchildren, and beyond will thank us for it. Not only them, but the other life forms that we share this planet with, not to mention our mountains, rivers, oceans, and so on. If people really are serious about supporting me for president, they need to know what they will be getting. A few other things I would be campaigning on. A massive reduction in the American military empire, using funds saved on that reduction toward investment in our infrastructure, as well as developments of alternative energies. And, in tandem with this, a shifting of our foreign policy from one of belligerence and the threat of force to one of building relationships and cooperative efforts. An end to the assault on civil liberties as promoted through things like the Patriot Act. A reconsideration of the failed war on drugs through a shifting in emphasis from treating drug abuse as a crime to treating it as a health issue. And of course, a massive commitment to protecting the environment. I'm sure there will be other things, but this is a start. I'd love to hear some feedback. If these are things, one more time. If these are things enough of you can get behind, come the weekend, I may have to humbly accept your desire for me to run for president.